Welcome to Podcast with Lara Axtell, a seasoned educator of 26 years. In each episode of Podcast, Lara explores a current educational topic from a variety of perspectives to identify practical solutions to help improve the future of education. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, Podcast with your host, Laura Axtell. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Podcast. I'm Laura Axtell, your host. One of the many benefits of an educational podcast is being able to share relevant information and conversations with knowledgeable people in a way that can actually be useful to educators and parents and have an impact with students. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Jeffrey Borman about middle school and his research that has shown promising results about how to make this important transitional period, as he put it, less awful. I hope you'll find today's topic as interesting as I did. Dr. Borman, welcome to PodClass, and thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, We're going to be talking today about some interesting research conducted by you and your team. Could you start by explaining your role? Well, I'm a professor here at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and my appointment is within the School of Education here, but I work with students all throughout the university in the social sciences. I direct a program on causal inference and education policy called the Interdisciplinary Training Program that's funded by the federal government, and that keeps me busy along with my my teaching and my research. So I'm excited to talk with you about your research, which was focused on middle school students. Middle school often doesn't get a lot of attention in the world of education. I kind of think of it as like the middle child. (laughs) Um, (laughs) How and why did you and your team make the decision to focus on middle school, you know, initially? Well, it should get more attention because I think there's a lot of evidence that middle school is legendarily awful for a lot of kids. It's kind of the the perfect storm in that as children enter adolescence, they're going through so many developmental changes that are quite profound, more more profound than just about any stage of life aside from the dramatic changes little kids experience from birth to two years old. There's a lot going on um, in the minds and the bodies of these emerging adolescents. And then piled on top of that, we then require about 90% of our students throughout the U.S. to make this physical move from their familiar, comfortable neighborhood elementary school to a much larger, much distant, much more ominous kind of looking in many ways and complex kind of organization called middle schools or junior high schools. And the research that I was familiar with showed that students who make that transition relative to kids who remain in a a K through eight school fare significantly worse academically. And so that physical transition that kids make at grade six or grade seven can set them on a downward spiral um, in terms of their grade point average, in terms of other kinds of indicators of their well-being. And so that physical transition to the more complicated and the unfamiliar middle school is is a really stressful and difficult experience for most kids, socially, psychologically, and academically. I, I just, it reminds me of when, 
my daughter made a, a similar transition. She's now transitioning to college, which is a whole other story. But when she made that transition, it was very difficult for her. And, and, and that way, that, uh, that, that process also inspired me. I, I, I also want to mention that I think that you're right, that oftentimes we start to really worry about alienation and um, uh, at the high school level. And I think that that process of alienation and disengagement from school, the kind of the path toward dropping out, often can take root at the beginning of middle school. In fact, a lot of school districts these days are designing these so-called early warning systems that uh, help predict which students may be going off track and which ones might be at risk for dropping out of high school. And the thing is, is that those kids who begin to receive bad grades and have higher rates of absences, who get into trouble uh, more often during those early years of middle school, those typically are the kids who eventually drop out of school. And so we really wanted to make a, a, take a more proactive stance to really help prevent that process of disengagement from happening in the first place. So could you describe your research? What were you hoping to investigate? Our intervention teaches students really two important lessons. First, we want to convey to all students that um, they're, they're going to experience some difficulty, both socially and academically, at the beginning of middle school. Virtually no one gets away without having some discomfort, you know, both socially and academically, whether it's not being able to find your friend to sit next to in the lunchroom or getting a bad grade. What we also try to remind students, though, is that this is a shared experience. All kids are experiencing this kind of rocky transition to middle school. And after a little while, things get better. And so when students read these messages that we're conveying to them, they learn that there's not something inherently wrong with them. And instead, they learn that the transition is a shared experience that's initially difficult for just about everybody. And I, I think one analogy is, you know, like when you jump into a cool swimming pool on a hot day, it, it's kind of an initially shocking and uncomfortable experience. But after a little while, you get used to it and the cool water actually feels pretty good. You know, and so the second thing that the uh, we try to tell students is that help is available from teachers and other adults at the school. Uh, usually, relationships between teachers and students at this stage, when they hit middle school, become a little bit more distant. Students have to traverse from class to class, and they may not feel as though they can establish the same kinds of caring relationships with their teachers as they did back in elementary school when they were with one teacher for the entire day. But when students engage in our intervention, they report that they trust their teachers more, that they like their schools, that uh, they're not as nervous about the big tests that they have to take. And ultimately, they feel like they fit in. And so I think these more positive attitudes about school help students worry a lot less, which then helps them devote a lot more of their cognitive and psychological resources to just doing well in school. And that increased sense of fitting in also leads to fewer absences from school, fewer instances of acting out. And over time, these shifts in students' beliefs and their behaviors 
uh, improved their academic and, uh, performance in school, which kind of reinforced all of those positive beliefs that we were trying to inspire. So rather than that all too often downward spiral I was talking about before, students experience instead some positive momentum that uh, really helps them make they uh, feel like they belong in school. Well, you mentioned messages and the intervention that you provided to these middle school students in the study. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we thought about this a great deal and talked with other social psychologists in the field about this whole middle school transition and thought about some different kinds of worries that kids might have at this stage. And basically the two sorts of worries that um, we kind of lumped together are one, kind of the academic worries that kids might have, as I mentioned, failing a a, a class or getting a bad grade on an assignment um, can send messages to kids that they're not going to be successful students in middle school. Also, as I mentioned before, some kind of social awkwardness at this stage as they're uh, in middle school can send bad messages that they don't fit in. And so we, we thought about different, even simple things, like when we thought about kids having to transition from class to class and not being able to remember where the next class was or not being able to remember their locker combination if they have lockers at this stage, uh, like many of them do. These were all things that we identified as potential worries that kids might have. And so we then decided that we wanted to write down anecdotes that would presumably come from middle school students. We decided to um, write out some of these anecdotes for students to read and to identify kind of these ideas that I expressed previously that kids often struggle initially, but um, over time, even though everybody experiences these struggles, that they ultimately do fit in and find their place and fit in both socially and academically. And so we we wrote up brief anecdotes that students read that kind of deliver this message to them that socially and academically, everybody experiences these kinds of adversities, but ultimately you're going to fit in. And we've fielded them with um, focus groups of kids and shared them with them, kids who had just made the transition from sixth grade, from elementary school, I should say, into sixth grade and shared with them these anecdotes. And in these focus groups that we held, they resonated with kids. They liked these messages. They thought that they made sense and that they seemed to uh, think that these messages might help other kids navigate this transition. And so that was good, just kind of, you know, face validity to see that these made sense and resonated with real kids. But that was a big intention of our our reading and writing exercises. We wanted them to be in the voice of other kids, and we wanted them to not be kind of preachy things that an adult might say to kids like, oh, it'll be okay, or, you know, oh, just, you know, straighten up and everything will be fine. We wanted these to be kind of genuine kinds of bits of advice that another peer might provide to kids. And so in that way, we think that they were particularly effective rather than trying to preach at kids and give them advice uh, as an adult. So let's talk about your results. What did the research show? Well, sure. So, I mean, amazingly enough, these two reading and writing exercises, each one of them occupied only 15 minutes 
of class time. So it was a relatively short amount of time that we devoted to these interventions. But even though we, they spent such small amount of class time, they really had powerful impacts on kids. Um, the students who participated in this intervention, they missed fewer days of school. They got sent to the principal's office less often, and they got better grades. We delivered surveys to the students to kind of try to understand their sense of well-being in school. And from those surveys, what we found was that uh, the students had better relationships with their teachers. They reported that they had better relationships with their classmates, reported that they were less anxious about taking important tests in school and that they were actually more motivated to do well on their classes. And so those positive attitudes helped the kids attend school more regularly, get in trouble less often, and ultimately, as you might think, they got better grades. Which is the prerequisite that we hope for to prepare them for junior high and high school. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's so much focus on social and emotional learning and education these days, and some schools have invested in some pretty expensive curriculum. Is it true that it costs only $1.35 per student to implement your program? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it's it's just basically the costs of uh, four sheets of paper. And we even factored in in that estimate the 30 minutes of class time that teachers would have to devote. So in, instead of, for instance, using their time and, and uh, energies to deliver other kinds of instruction, the 30 minutes that uh, they, they took to deliver these interventions, we've accounted for their salaries to deliver that, uh, deliver these two interventions. So yeah, all that amounts to $1.35 per student. And interestingly enough, there were some researchers from Columbia University in New York who recently estimated the costs of um, six really popular programs that target students' social-emotional learning. And on average, those six popular interventions cost almost $600 per student. And one of those six interventions was actually being used in the school district that we studied. So the students who received our intervention for $1.35, in addition to that SEL program, outperformed the control group of students who received only that more expensive um, social-emotional learning program. Well, that just has to be such good news on so many levels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought so. What did the teachers, I'm really interested to hear what the teachers thought about the results. Well, it, you know, there's not, because, because the study was delivered in such a way that within each school, half of the children were receiving these positive messages while the other half was our so-called control group that was receiving more kind of just general messages about, uh, for instance, learning politics and how that can kind of not be so fun and also other kinds of anecdotes that weren't really related to these ideas that I've been expressing about fitting in and belonging in middle school. So it's really difficult actually for us to gauge, you know, teachers' responses to this because about half of their kids got the positive messages and half of them uh, got the more neutral messages. So in the aggregate, it, it's difficult to kind of understand what a teacher's perspective might be. I can tell you one thing, though, that for every child who received the intervention, 
on average, it meant that child was going to be attending school uh, more regularly and getting in trouble less often. So I would imagine those were probably some pretty positive things that they saw, even if only half of the students were experiencing the intervention. So based on that, what do you think is important for teachers, especially administrators, as they're deciding on programs, and parents to know about the challenges that children face when they transition to middle school? Why do you think your research is particularly important in today's school environment? Well, I I think in general, middle schools are not usually well equipped to help students make this transition. In fact, I think many of the things that middle schools do actually make things worse. For instance, during each year of grade school, most students are under the care of one caring teacher. It's more of a kind of maternalistic or paternalistic kind of relationship that a student has with uh, his or her teacher. But middle schools demand that students now must navigate these new relationships with several teachers um, who teach different classes and have different personalities and who assign grades that all of a sudden are suddenly meaning a lot more. And middle middle school students also have to now negotiate all these new relationships with these larger networks of students who are coming to middle schools from multiple elementary schools, typically the way feeder systems work. And uh, many of these kids they've never met. And many of them appear quite a bit older and quite a bit imposing, you know, and especially when you consider a, 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 an entering sixth grader relative to uh, an eighth grade student. Those two years can mean a lot in terms of uh, development. And some of these um, older kids can, can look a lot uh, more like adults than uh, these little sixth graders. So I, I think the thing is, is that, you know, many good teachers are already doing a lot of the things that our intervention is designed to convey to kids. For example, a good teacher can provide messages of reassurance and offer help to those students who are struggling socially or academically. So just having teachers be aware of which kids seem to be having trouble fitting in uh, socially or, or academically and going to them and offering their assistance. And that kind of care and going out of your way to help um, a student who might be struggling, I think, are, are important things that teenagers uh, or emerging teenagers really value having strong adult role models in their lives. And to the extent that teachers can reach out and offer that kind of reassurance and help to students, I think would be really powerful and helpful. But uh, by the same token, you know, these emerging teenagers are often more attentive to the advice of a peer. As I mentioned, that's way, a way that we purposely designed uh, the intervention, that it would be delivered in the voice of um, other students. So sometimes, you know, they, they believe the messages that are delivered by our intervention because they come from stories of other students. And schools might also take that kind of information and perhaps arrange peer mentoring programs, you know, as a way to deliver these same kinds of messages by student peers who successfully navigated the middle school transition. Those students might deliver the same kinds of messages that uh, we found successful in our intervention materials. And would you also support some of the things that are being proposed or implemented at schools like buddy benches and, you know, lunch tables where students can come so that they don't have to sit alone? Yeah, absolutely. Those are those are good ideas for sure. 
We'll be right back. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com/trial for 14 days of free access to our software. So, let's go back to teachers again. I can so reinforce what you were saying about that really difficult piece of going from maybe one teacher to maybe as many as six or seven teachers. Right. And I've met many middle school students that didn't couldn't even remember all their teachers' names. Right, right. So, it is such a difficult thing that relationship when you only see them for a finite number of minutes in a day, uh, maybe on a block schedule even, so you're not even seeing them every day or it's a special, is that part of it, that it, they just don't have the ability to have relationships in the same way? Yeah, I think that's accurate, that um, it is more difficult both for teachers and for their students to develop those relationships. And again, that's just a structural constraint that these middle schools present and it it is difficult to overcome, but I think in the context of the classroom and um, even after class, taking the time to talk to students and to make sure that they're doing okay academically and socially, that teachers can set aside the time to try to cultivate those relationships a little bit more. But I, I know, I, I, I understand what you're saying. It It does make it a little bit more difficult to do that for sure. But maybe that's really the first and most important piece that people need to take away from your research is that we need to give this period of time in a student's academic life much more, you know, importance. And we need to be looking at those kinds of interventions that don't have to be expensive or time consuming, because really it's about establishing relationships, helping them navigate socially, emotionally, academically. Yeah, absolutely. And and even beyond folks in the schools, I think that there are some lessons that parents can learn from this as well, that, you know, parents should encourage their middle school students to develop these positive relationships with their teachers and to ask them for help when needed and not to feel embarrassed or worried about doing that. One very significant impact of our intervention was that students felt more comfortable with and more trusting of their teachers. And so to the extent that parents can also deliver that message that teachers are there to help and these are caring folks who enter the profession largely because they like kids and they like being with kids, that if parents can reinforce that message, I think that would also be very important. Another thing that I think a very practical solution that some parents might choose is to kind of go to the school with their student before the academic year begins, if that's possible, and to kind of do a dry run, you know, to show their their um, adolescent that, uh, hey, here's how we get to school. He, walk through the, the school in terms of showing your child how to get from one class to the next and kind of really engage in, like I said, kind of like a dry run of like, here's what the middle school experience is like. This is what the building looks like. It can make things appear a lot less intimidating when students actually walk into school for the first day. So those parent nights and student orientations really are important. Oh, yeah, I think so, for sure. And I think just being able to, you know, be with your your child there 
and be able to show them around and kind of, you know, let them get the feel for what the school is like. And it just, it makes it feel a lot less intimidating when the school year eventually begins. Could you expand on that point a little bit? We know that it's a struggle for students to go from one teacher to multiple teachers, but it can be a struggle for parents as well, right? They've been used to communicating with one teacher, and now they may have six or seven teachers, and they just navigating school websites and contact information, and how do I find out my child's grades or if they've turned in a paper? I mean, have you seen that that may just help to contribute to part of that issue? Well, I think that you may be onto something there that that might be difficult for parents as well. I'll, I'll tell you that uh, I think one thing that has really improved the situation in recent years is the accessibility of grades and other progress reports that teachers can share electronically via some of these systems that high schools and middle schools and some elementary schools now offer to their parents. And so I think another strategy I would suggest is to keep tabs on those reports that are coming in so that you can kind of be, you know, establish your own kind of early warning system as a parent to understand where your child might be going off track in a particular class and to then kind of strategically engage that teacher in a discussion that uh, might help help rectify that problem. And I know a lot of schools are using you know, even apps and things like that, where there's an attempt at least to, you know, send information to parents that they can get on their smartphone, for example, instead of if they don't have, you know, a computer at home or something like that. And it's kind of very time sensitive. So they find something out that day, for example. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I think there are some real positive things to say about these developments and apps and kind of all of these online resources that parents might uh, avail themselves of. But uh, I think, you know, on the flip side of that, technology and social media especially can bring about some difficulties that compound some of these problems that I've been talking about for uh, middle school students. And in early adolescence, I think children start to become increasingly aware of how others, um, especially their classmates, see them and and they're desperately trying to fit in. And so, you know, any kind of bad review or bad feedback that kids get via social media and not to mention in person when they can't find that person that they want to sit next to in the lunchroom, that all of those things can, can really compound a lot of the problems that kids have making this transition. So based on your results, what do you envision going forward or what do you think might be important for schools to consider for the future? And I just want to ask you if I know I know there's probably no research on this yet, but I'd be really interested to know if if this is something that could be transferable so that once a student knows the transition to middle school, hey, it's going to be tough for a while, et cetera. But the same thing happens when they go to junior high and then again to high school. I wonder if kids, if they learn in middle school, hey, this is common among people. We're going to we're going to get there. I wonder if if they take that message with them as they do other transitions in school. Well, one thing is, is that we are in our study, we're tracking these students longitudinally to see what kind of difference it makes over time. But I think that those are really good points that you mentioned that I think with every transition, 
it brings about more uncertainties and more adversity that students experience. There's plenty of research that suggests that the transition to college could be difficult for a lot of kids. And I imagine the transition to high school uh, is also a difficult one. So we've, we've definitely considered following up with perhaps designing other interventions that might help ease the transition to high school or to junior high school, like you mentioned. Well, your intervention is so simple and it's so inexpensive. This is certainly transferable to any school that would like to consider it, correct? Yeah, it it really, though, does need to be tailored to each school. And it's not as simple as just dropping these four sheets of paper in front of students. It's a process where I or um, another social psychologist would have to kind of work with the school a little bit to fine tune these reading and writing exercises to really fit the needs of their students. Uh, Just as, as one minor example, we've now successfully actually replicated these results. We've reproduced the impacts in another school district uh, in Arizona, and we're writing up that research now um, as we speak. But uh, we had to tweak minor things about the exercises. For instance, in, in Madison, I mentioned that one difficulty that students mentioned was you know, geez, where's my locker or what's my locker combination? Well, in Arizona, they don't have lockers. So, you know, that was, so one of our anecdotes was about that, you know, about the, the struggles with, you know, your locker in Madison, but uh, that was not relevant in Arizona. So we had to delete that part of the exercise and insert uh, other material. So it does take some fine tuning like that from place to place. But uh, yeah, this is something that is definitely replicable and that's something that other school districts with my assistance or the assistance of someone else could continue implementing. So that's really what we can envision, that there's some a light shined on middle school, first of all, to, to determine how important it is for teachers and parents to understand. And second of all, to continue this research to really provide the kinds of supports kids need in those early years that may have a long-term effect. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is just fascinating. And I think something that is really going to help people just consider middle school in a different light. So thank you so much for sharing your research and kind of how this can really impact students at a really, really crucial time in their lives. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune into the next episode where we'll continue discussing middle school with a social and emotional learning coordinator from Atlanta. She'll offer insights and strategies that have been successful and some resources that may be helpful to schools and parents. Until next time. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of PodClast. To be notified when future episodes are available, subscribe to PodClast on iTunes. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. PodClass is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com demo to see if Reading Horizons is right for your school. Reading Horizons. Reading is for everyone.